bring a uh, message on the uh, ACC tournament weekend. <laughs> I didn't think about that when I agreed to. Uh, I did when I. <laughs> when he traded. Yeah, when he traded. Somebody had to get the shortest shot. Well, have any of you been able to watch any of the uh, the Bible? mini-series on the History Channel. If you haven't, that's probably for the better. You know, the special effects, they're pretty good. The acting is okay, but the theology in that show was really missing. And I'm, I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that are watching that thinking, oh, this is what the Bible really says. Last week, part two started off with Joshua and the story of Jericho. Uh, you know, and as best as I can tell, at least what I've watched so far, even though they use this Bible, they say that uh, this is what it's based on, they don't stick too closely to the script. I mean, in, in Joshua, they didn't even include what I would consider the biggest miracle, the crossing of the Jordan River. I mean, that was left out completely. And, and so that was what was driving um, what I'm going to speak on today. Is I would like to look at that narrative in Joshua and look at uh, Joshua chapters 2 through 5. And instead of reading through all of that right now, uh, try and give a summary of it. The children of Israel had been led out of Egypt to take the promised land. But of course they had become too afraid, too cowardly. They had sent 12 spies into the land. 10 came back saying, there's no way. These people are too big for us. We can't take the land. Two of the spies had been faithful. And they said, yes, these people are quite large, but our God is bigger. We can do it with God's help. Well, the people were scared they ended up believing the ten instead of the two. So they spent the next nearly 40 years wandering in the wilderness after that, in punishment by God, in order that that generation that didn't believe would just die off. God would raise up their children who would believe Him and serve Him, and He would bring them into the promised land. And so that kind of catches us up to... Joshua. Now, again, spies are sent into the land by Joshua. They immediately go to Rahab's house. Rahab was a harlot, a prostitute. Why would spies go to Rahab's house? She was going to be the lineage of the Lord. Well, that's, yes, definitely led by God. (laughs) But you think about it. You're entering into enemy territory to spy the land out, and you don't want to be noticed. You're going to go to a place where there are lots of people coming and going who don't ask your name. I mean, it was really a perfect place to be inconspicuous. So they went into Rahab's house, and yes, it turned out to be the right place by the providence of God. She gave them shelter, gave them accurate information about what the people of Jericho were really thinking. 
and their concerns about the people of Israel and God. And of course we know the story how the men from the king of Jericho came looking for the spies. Rahab hides the spies, then then, uh, tells the men that the spies have already left. Later the the spies escape by climbing down a rope out of her window. They return to Joshua and give him the good report. And then in chapter 3, the Israelites plan to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. The Jordan River stops. They walk across on dry ground. They're told to remember this by picking out 12 stones. And in chapter 5, they prepare to receive the promised land. Now that's just a quick overview. And what I want to do is dive into that and look at some of the things that are missing from the Bible, the mini-series. God was calling the Israelites in a special way. And he showed his concern in a way that could be seen. And what I'm going to do is, is kind of focus on a theme of different aspects of belief as we as I walk through this. So, so the topic is really believing the promises. And so we're going to look at, we're going to see what different aspects of believing come out. And the first one that I want to look at is believing is seeing the work of God in the present. You see, one of the ways that that God showed the people of Israel his goodness was giving them Joshua as a leader. I mean, it says in, in chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And you continue reading, that that's what happens. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him throughout his life as they had revered Moses. So God gave them something they could see, a leader named Joshua. But, of course, the big event is, as I mentioned, the drying up of the Jordan River. Now, that's the centerpiece. That's the miracle in this passage that is completely overlooked in, uh, in the Bible. In chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, if you want to follow along. Then he said to the priests, Take the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. The Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priest, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the waters, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, Come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. You will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Pezerites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. When the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, come to rest in Jordan's waters, its waters will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priest carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. 
Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. But as soon as the priest carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarathan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, which was the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite of Jericho. The priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. And then if you skip on down to verse 14 of chapter 4. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him throughout his life as they had revered Moses. The Lord told Joshua, Command the priest who carry the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up from the Jordan. And when the priest carried the ark of the Lord's covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan, and their feet stepped out onto solid ground, the waters of the Jordan resumed their course, flowing over all the banks as before. Now, that is some miracle. That is real evidence. That's something they could see. They had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. But now God continues the promise. They're led to the Jordan. They're led through the Jordan to the promised land. And you think about it. This is really similar to when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. It's a renewal of the promise. A revisiting of that promise. God has renewed his covenant with them. And he shows them through this action that they are Yahweh's people. Think about this miracle for a minute. The scripture I just read tells us that God waited until a time when the rains had come, the snows on Mount Hermon had all melted, so the river was at flood stage. It was not some little river that you could wade across. The river was at flood stage. And yet, it stopped. Calvin said this, For the Jordan was compelled to yield obedience to God, just as if it had beheld His majesty. The waters, though naturally liquid, would become stable in obedience to His word. It's by this miracle that they would know the living God was with them. And in doing this, God is saying, I will surely give you the land. I mean, wouldn't it have been foolish for them to have crossed the Jordan and then start doubting God's providence for them? So they believed. And the first aspect of believing is that believing is seeing God work in the present. Believing is seeing God work in the present. Now another aspect of believing is remembering God's work in the past. In two notable ways, God calls them to remember what he has just done. First, we've read about how after how they crossed, they were to pick up 12 stones from the middle of the river and set them up 
as a remembrance, stones of remembrance, so that when the children ask, they would be told of what God has done, of his goodness in the past. And they also were to celebrate Passover. So the first thing that they do when they get across, they were told to prepare themselves. And one way that they did that was with the Passover meal, where they remember. You know, one of the most tragic diseases of our age is Alzheimer's. I, I know that some of you have had family members that uh, have suffered with that. My, my grandmother suffered with that. You know, the person continues to function physically, but their memory goes. And with their memory, their, their personality. And uh, you know, I remember seeing my grandmother's uh, personality just fade away. Uh, what she did retain was just a jumble of confusion. Uh, and yet I use that and think about us as Christians. What are the things that we should be remembering? You know, uh, what are the things that we should be given thanks for that we actually forget about? Are there things in our lives that we should look back on and remember God's faithfulness in the past. I'm sure there's places in our lives where we do give thanks, but things in our lives where we don't remember to give thanks. You know, we need to look back and be faithful to recall those good things God has done for us. Uh, there's a, a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, help me to remember today the things you taught me yesterday. Uh, and, and sometimes I, it seems I know I'm not a really good steward of God's blessings in the sense that I don't try to remember them as I should. And I don't think we treasure them up as we should. But if we do, if we treasure them up, if we recall them, if we remember them, we will be encouraged to future obedience. So part of believing is remembering the work of God in our lives in the past. Remembering His work and giving thanks. Believing is also hearing the Word of God. In this story, God's word, his promise, is primary. Literally. Think about it. I mean, they're, they're crossing over the Jordan River. Were they crossing over the Jordan River because real estate prices were better on the other <laughs> side? You know, did they have relatives they were going to visit? Job relocation. That was the, that's the reason that they're crossing over the Jordan River. No. They're crossing over because of God's promise. God had promised to give them the land. So they're acting on that promise. God had spoken a word and they were following through on that promise. Now, listen, it says, uh, this is in chapter 3, verse 2. It talks about when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priest... You must break camp and follow it. So they were literally following the word of God. 
They were commanded to follow the ark. The ark of the covenant was leading them into the promised land. Now in crossing the Jordan, of course God just didn't drop the river and let them cross and that's the end of it. He explains the meaning. This is in Joshua 3, 9-11 where he says, You will know that the living God, this is Joshua speaking, you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess before you all those people, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and so on, when the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, goes ahead of you in the Jordan. So there's a reason that this is happening. And then later on, when it's when they're setting up the stones, and it says, in the future, when your children ask the fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You will tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. See the connection to the Red Sea here. Which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. Here's the key. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So God did this so that the people of Israel would know him, would trust him, would believe him, but he also did it so that the nations would know. God isn't only interested in the children of Israel in all this. He's acting on a much grander scale than just one nation. And this kind of brings us to the story of Rahab. She had told the spies. What had she told the spies? She had told them that her people, the people of Jericho, had heard what God was doing. Had heard about the story of God drying up the Red Sea. And he had heard the story of, of them defeating the Amorite kings across the Jordan. This is the God who she knew to be the God of the whole world. And this is what he represents himself as being. And he answers the question of why they were doing this when he says, so that all the people of the earth may know. And the primary example that we see here is Rahab. Again, Rahab was not an Israelite, but she had heard the stories. And she began to believe, she began to believe in this God who was doing these things. And as a Gentile, she was incorporated into the people of God. And if you think about it, unless any of you have a Jewish heritage, you're a Gentile. And in a sense, she is our predecessor. This lying prostitute is the mother of our faith, even as Abraham is the father of our faith. I mean, and I didn't come up with that. That's from James, by the way. James in chapter 2, when he chose two examples of a living and active faith, chose Abraham, the father of the faithful, and Rahab. Rahab, who like Abraham, think about it, she renounced her country in order to follow God's promises for the future. She is a very ultimate outsider yet included in the very heart of God's plans. And so why does nobody name their daughter Rahab? 
Good question. Probably because of her previous. Previous, yes. Occupation. <laughs> Good way to put it. Well, what we need to take away from that, though, is that Rahab had faith. She was hearing the very same reports as the other citizens of Jericho. But for some reason, let me think about it, living in this walled city that had not been conquered in centuries, a city that was unbelievably secure, nobody can take over Jericho, nobody can conquer it. Yet, she believed that Yahweh could. In a biblical sense, she believed dwelling with her people in this fortified city, she commits herself to the people of Israel, to the spies. She trusts her life to them as if they had already gained possession of the land and had the full power to save or destroy her. It is as if spiritual ears had been given to her to hear the word of God. So believing one aspect of believing is hearing the word of God. Another aspect of believing is hoping in the promises of God. We see in these passages that the Israelites had hope. And in chapter 2, when they're speaking to Rahab, they say, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Now, notice this. They said, when the Lord gives us the land. They could have said, if the Lord gives us the land. But they didn't. And then, of course, later on, they told Joshua, when they went back to Joshua and gave him the report, they, they said, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. They're already believing hoping on that promise of God. Everyone who lives in a land is panicking because of us. Notice the encouragement here. They had high hopes of God fulfilling his promises. And Rahab did too. We think of, I'm bringing up her again. She was trusting her life and the lives of her whole family on these promises of God. If it came out that she was consorting with the enemy who were about to attack the city, what do you think would happen to her? Her life would be done for. She'd be killed, probably her and her family. But Rahab had the same faith that these Israelites did. They had a hope in a future that they could see coming. Now, I want to make sure we understand that this hope is not a wish, it's an anticipation. Christian belief has as a basic component this type of hope. Not a, not a hope in the sense of something that we desire but don't know is going to take place. Don't know if it will ever happen or not. But a hope in the sense of something that we perceive is a coming reality. So I ask this question. What is it that you expect in the future? What is the coming reality that you know you should hope for today? Maybe non-spiritually, what is it that you really look forward to? 
what is it that you order your life by or order your life for so that you will have it in the future? Well, that's really what you hope for. You know, it doesn't matter the songs that we sing as we've gathered this morning unless we're hoping for the things that are contained within those songs. Our hope placed in the work of Christ on the cross. Our hope of those promises. So part of believing is hoping in the promises of God. And then believing is living in the will of God. God was with these Israelites. You know, that's what the Ark of the Covenant was to tell them. And Joshua tells the people that God, what God was doing, that God intended to drive the Jordan, that God was with them. But this God is holy. And it says in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, as they're preparing to cross over the Jordan, keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it. Keep a distance of a thousand yards. Not a hundred yards, the length of a football field, but a thousand yards. Keep that level of distance between you and the ark. Think of, think of how in their minds the level of holiness that that indicates. A thousand yards is a long distance. Over half a mile. Yeah. Keep a thousand yards between yourselves and the yard. And throughout the Old Testament you have this theme of physical separation of the people from the things of God because it shows God's holiness and his perfection which is morally searching and it distances us as sinners but on the other hand it's no surprise that following God believing does involve living in the will of God here in this passage we see reverence we see humility in the way that the ark is treated and then the way that the people consecrate and set themselves apart they were patient think about it they're, they're getting ready to invade the land and what do they do do they go through army drills do they sharpen their spears and sharpen their swords is that what they did to prepare for the invasion well it says specifically that they were to consecrate themselves through circumcision now, if you're going into battle, that's probably not the best way to, uh, to do the preparations. Abraham and his descendants had been practicing circumcision for centuries. And yet, in the desert, they stopped doing this. You've got to wonder why, because God certainly did not command them to stop. But And the narrative doesn't tell us. But I guess I think that's probably because they stopped believing in the promises of God. So they stopped acting and following the commands of God at that point. Perhaps they didn't have the conviction that God was going to give them the land. 
They were just wandering, wandering, and you know, their disobedience led to God's judgment for that disobedience. They were renouncing the covenant, renouncing the sign of the covenant, and so God was putting the covenant in suspended animation for a certain time. But now they were to reinstitute or recommence the sign of the covenant. I mean, think about it. Not only personal pain involved in this, but you've just crossed the Jordan River into enemy territory. And the first thing you do is circumcise your entire army. Not a good position to be in if you're about to be attacked. But if you're trusting the Lord and obeying Him, it's the right thing to do. And it's exactly what Joshua did. Why did he do this? Because he knew that God was giving them the land. And he knew that they would not gain the land through their own strength. You know, I already mentioned that the river was at flood stage when they crossed through. And yet, what did God tell them to do? He tells them, take the holiest thing you possess, walk into the river with it. Think about the obedience that they had to do to, to, to do that. Taking the holiest thing, walk up to the water's edge and the priest's feet to touch the water and the water part. So this was the very thing that their parents had failed to do. And yet, they found the courage to obey. That courage rooted in the promises of God. So we see a clear picture here. A clear picture from the Israelites that if we really believe it, it must affect the way we live. Without living in the will of God, there is no biblical believing. It is a significant component of believing. So believing is living in the will of God. So believing is seeing, remembering, hearing, hoping, and living. Seeing the work of God in the present, remembering the work of God in the past, hearing the word of God, hoping on the promises, and living in the will of God. And when we think about it, we've got to ask ourselves, does my belief encompass all of these areas? Do I believe? It's easy to say that we believe when nothing depends on it. When we're sitting relaxed and comfortable, knowing that you know we're about finished. Uh, you've probably heard the story before of the stump man who crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Uh, his name was Charles Blondin, and he was he was a famous French tightrope walker. Uh, his greatest fame was in 1859. That's when he was the first person to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. A tightrope stretched a quarter of a mile across Niagara Falls. They took the tightrope across the river in a rowboat. That tightrope was more than three inches thick. And the distance was a little bit over 1,000 feet. Now, the tightrope sagged by 
by sixty by about sixty feet in the middle. So it's so it's not something that's just straight across and easy to walk. As he's walking across it, it sags some sixty feet. Now, that crossing took him about seventeen minutes to do. And he got across one side, and he comes back much faster the next time. And he did several crossings. I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible. He crossed over blindfolded one time. He crossed over on stilts one time. He crossed over in a gorilla costume. I don't know why. Uh, and he crossed over pushing a wheelbarrow one time. And so the story goes that after pushing the wheelbarrow across, that the crowd's applause was louder than the roar of the falls. And so he asked, do you believe that I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And the crowd enthusiastically shouted, yes, 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 you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. You can do anything. Okay, says Blondin, get in the wheelbarrow. Now, nobody took him up on that offer. Later on, he actually did carry his manager across on his back. Uh, but we think of that story and go, well, nobody, got, nobody trusted him enough to get in the wheelbarrow. Our lives show what we believe. So my question is, do you really believe this morning? Are you remembering what God did for you in the past? Are you believing in the promises of God for the future? As a believer, this morning we should be thanking God for His Word for what He has shown us, for His miracles in our lives, for what He has spoken to us, for what He has promised to us, for how He has empowered us to live by His Holy Spirit. For as a, as a believer, we couldn't live the life that we live without the power of the Holy Spirit. And two of the verses that stand out to me in this whole narrative story uh, is in chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 because it says the day after the Passover they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land and the day after that they ate from the produce of the land the day after they ate from the produce of the land the manna stopped since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Again, do you see how good God is? He always provides for His people. He had been providing manna in the wilderness all these years. Now that they've reached the promised land, when the manna stops, He still provides for them from the grain, from the crops of the land. He always provides exactly what we need even in a wilderness that he might call us to go through he provides for us it's his work 
He initiated it. He will preserve us in it. He will supply what we need. He will bring it to completion. So the challenge is believing on his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we can look back and and read of of the faith, of the belief of Joshua and the Israelites and the faith and the belief of of Rahab what strength that she had to believe when everything around her would say there's no reason to Father I pray that you would grant us that level of belief Turn the light on in our hearts so that we can see the things that you have done for us in the past and remember them. See the things that you were doing in our lives right now and acknowledge them. Father, strengthen our lack of faith. Help us to see your work. Give us ears to hear your word and a heart to hope in your promises. And cause us, help us to live in ways that bring the glory and the honor to you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.